Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. Today's a nice uh, winter day. We got snow blowing everywhere, I'm sure upstate as well as uh, here in Pittsburgh. Not sure about uh, how it's doing in Texas, but got a nice cozy January day. How you doing today, Albert? Um, good. Kind of uh, an annual Martin Luther King uh, weekend um, ritual that we do. We have our best friends and their sons, um, actually one of them now because one of their sons has graduated from college and uh, working down in Brazil in a gap year. Uh, they come, uh, my best friend, his wife, and this uh, this year one of their sons, and we usually we cook, we we hang, and then we usually watch a movie or two that's that's connected to the to the weekend in some way. And uh, we did uh, Selma last year, which was a very powerful movie. Mm-hmm. And this year, believe it or not, I somehow I missed Mississippi Burning when I was a kid. And mm-hmm. uh, we're about halfway through that movie, and we we paused the movie so that I could do this. And wow, that movie is. It's just shaking me up. I mean, what a what an incredibly powerful film. And it just t- turns out this weekend I'm finishing up a very long book I'm reading, uh, The Life of uh, Frederick Douglass. And uh, long story short, 100 years of history in the United States. We haven't uh, really changed that much. And we're still basically in denial about a lot of stuff. And uh, we could go on and do a separate show on that. But yeah. it's a mixture of inspiring but also really depressing to see the sort of the, the enduring, the enduring presence of hate, it just is one of those things, you know. It's uh, nasty and powerful, and uh, hopefully we'll be we'll be adding our little bit of positivity and maybe maybe fighting against that tide, even even if it's a little. Absolutely, I think you know we can all speak on hatred. We can all speak on history, and also speak on you know bettering ourselves and what we're doing today and in the future to to make a you know, better existence for us and for our children. So, you know, I definitely think that's a, a great other show topic, but we have, uh, you know, a couple of things that we want to talk about here today. We have uh, my friend Sam joining us and, you know, really talking about, you know, men's vulnerability and stuff. And, uh, you know, going with your weekend uh, celebration, I also have uh, one of my own. My son turned one yesterday. So we had a a big, uh, well, by big, you know, a <laughs> small birthday party, but a big celebration for us um, just as parents and as a family. It was just so nice to see what what's happened in a year's time. I mean, geez, like my life has changed, I want to say like night and day becoming a father. So it was really great celebrating that with my family and some of our family friends. So it was just a really great time. Sweet. Yeah, recognize you think that he recognized even a tiny bit that he was a little more special today than any other day. I think so. Um, grandma and grandpa got him a uh, a, a nice red tricycle sort of like stroller thing. So it's a very like multifaceted toy, um, so that we can push him around or he can do it on his own. So he looks at that and he just loves it. He's been playing with it the whole time and his eyes just light up. So I think that's uh, really got him going. So I'm really excited to see him learn and play with that. All right. right. So are you going to tell me a little bit about how you met Sam? And Absolutely. So yeah, Sam um, is here. He's uh, one of my friends. We met in um, a coaching group and, you know, we just talk about, you know, a lot of different aspects. Um, His profile really caught my eye and his project, uh, which is called the Unbreakable Man Project, um, is something really powerful for for men, um, you know, around the world. 
Uh, let me give you a brief bio about them, and then we'll go ahead and bring them onto the show. Sam Morse is an ex-collegiate and professional tennis player. He's a recovered alcoholic. He's a men's mental health coach. He's the founder of the Unbreakable Man Project, and he's a toxic masculinity warrior. All right, let's bring Sam onto the show. Sam, it's a pleasure to have you here, man. Thanks, Adam. Great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you've got a lot going on uh, in your bio here, and I think uh, you have a lot of powerful things to say to our audience. But I think one of the first things that I did not know about you was the uh, the tennis on there. So um, I played hockey growing up, but tell me a little about what it was like being like an actual, you know, collegiate athlete and a professional player. Well, first of all, I, I heard you at the risk of um, diving into small talk and not getting vulnerable. Yeah. I heard you guys talking about weather. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Texas is Texas. I've lived a lot of places. I, li- I grew up in Vermont. Um, went to college mm-hmm. in North Carolina, lived in Miami for a bunch of years, San Francisco. And I will say that Texas is the weirdest weather state I have ever been a part of. I mean, it <laughs> goes from, it goes literally in the morning, it can be 43 degrees and it'll end up being 78 and sunny in the afternoon. And so yeah. that's, uh, you asked how Texas was. It's today it's sunny at about 60. Where exactly are you located? I'm in Austin right now. Just moved here last November. Beautiful. Cool. There's a restaurant in town called Wink, and my my buddy's the owner of that place and the chef. Oh, nice. I'll check it out. Yeah, it's supposed to be really great. I'm embarrassed that I've never been there. <laughs> Do you have a yeah. Rudy's Barbecue down there? I lived in Albuquerque for a couple years, and Rudy's Barbecue was like a Texas change, but absolutely loved it. Uh, I mean, there's, I haven't seen one yet. I haven't been here that long, but yeah, there's, there's, bar- there's no shortage of barbecue here. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> what actually brought you down to that area? Uh, so it was basically a change of scenery. Um, I was living, so I, I ended up moving, I was in North Carolina when my, when I first got sober, my last relapse was in North Carolina and I made my way across the country through a couple of rehabs, um, Michigan and Utah. And then the last step out of sober living was to San Francisco where my sister was living. And I stayed there for about seven years, actually six years, and then moved over here in um, in November of last year. But well, it was a could, go ahead. Congrats to you on that. Thank on you. That, uh, journey. I realize it's an ongoing journey. Yeah. But it's got to be very gratifying to, yeah. to be putting putting together a long string of successful successful days. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's really good. It's really nice to you know the have it not be a the first thought or have, you know, kind of like be just living sober as opposed to trying to get sober. It's like, I always use the analogy with my clients. It's a lot easier to, to get sober or to get, or it's a lot easier to stay sober or stay somewhere or stay in shape than it is to get somewhere, get sober, get in shape, get overcome depression. Like once you get through it, it's, it's a lot easier to do the little things that make you, the maintenance stuff as opposed to the, the big, huge steps that it takes to get there. Is it too is it too grand scale to relate the the depression mention that you just made to the sobriety issue? Was it were they all sort of in a mix of various things happening, setting one thing off the other, or are they just somewhat distinct? Um, they are not distinct. However, they are in layers. If that makes any sense. So, um, the drinking for me. So I when I well, it's it's um. Not to dive too far back, but growing up, I had a lot of allergies and, and food, uh, food allergies and asthma. And so I developed this massive social anxiety. So when I figured out that drinking would relieve that, um, that's where the drinking kind of came in as a, as a relief for that. And now, 
touching on what Adam was talking about, about the tennis, the tennis for me for a long time kept my drinking at bay. Like you'll hear a lot of people that'll say like athletes, for example, that were really, really good at their sport, but they ended up having a problem with drugs or alcohol that kind of took the sport away from them. Mine was kind of a flip of that. Whereas like the tennis was so important to me that it kept the alcoholism and the addiction at bay until I stopped playing tennis. So when my tennis career was over, it kind of cracked the door open for the addiction to come in. Now, um, the tennis was also kind of a mask for the anxiety in a way that tennis is a very individual sport. And, and I felt like if I focused on that so much, I didn't have to worry about being social with my friends or saying no to parties. I had a good reason to say no to going to parties. I had a good reason to avoid social, social gatherings because I had this priority of tennis. Now, the depression and the anxiety, I, to, say I was, I was, to say I was unaware is is wrong but to say that i was completely um i completely recognized that's what was going on wouldn't be wouldn't be correct either because i felt different and i felt weird and i felt uncomfortable but i didn't recognize that it was actually anxiety and depression and so when you when i took away that layer of drinking that layer of alcoholism and that layer of addiction you know underneath that is when all the other stuff kind of comes up it's like i make the analogy a lot to building a house you know, when you, when you, the first thing you do when you build a house is you buy a piece of land and then you have to excavate the land of all the rocks that are underneath the surface because that's what land does is it pushes rocks up. And so when you take away that top layer of, of dirt or whatever and then underneath is all these rocks, like that's what the addiction, that's what the, the um, depression, the anxiety, all that stuff was, the trauma from being so sick, all that stuff was underneath my drinking. So, to, so the drinking became so regular and such a gradual process for me that I didn't realize what it was actually covering up and why I was doing it. Wow. Yeah, kind of so, long-winded there, but <laughs> that's all right. You know, giving us a tell. So what it sounds like is that the drinking was really like the symptoms for like the root cause of the anxiety and the depression and, you know, sort of the, the self-loathing towards the sickness. So you said this, um, you had a lot of mental excavation, what was your kind of process to start like, you know, the groundbreaking, that first kind of initial shovel um, to find those rocks to bring them up? You mean after denial? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after that. Um, uh, so, so the first step in the process was, for me was learning how to communicate. Uh, learning how to communicate to other people and to process and, you know, really to communicate it myself. But it was, it, it was the ability to get vulnerable to, to like to find other people to, especially guys um, when it comes to recovery and from alcoholism or addiction it's really the, the biggest thing you can always have is like a solid group of four or five like a core group of guys that, I, that you can call at any time with anything no matter what it is cry scream yell get angry get pissed laugh whatever you need to do at that time the vulnerability that comes that you that that you need to learn how to do is the first thing that I, when I finally got sober was the first thing that I did. I got vulnerable about that, you know, like, cause there's a, th there's a phrase like, you know, I always said for so long, for 15 years, I battled this addiction. Um, the last five were like the really, really bad years, but for 10 previous to that, there was, there was glimpses of it. And, um, you know, I always said, Oh, it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me. Like AA doesn't work for me or sobriety doesn't work for me. And there's a, you, have to, you have to 
flip that, that, that sentence in that respect is just, it, it's like a, it's like a, an equation. You sort of flip it around. You know, it doesn't work for me because no, the, the answer is you don't work for it. And when you start working for it, it means that you get vulnerable about like, Hey, like I hate social situations. Like they make me really uncomfortable. Social situations, like the one thing, a lot of the times when I kept drinking after a peer, after, after a trip to rehab or a period of sobriety, you know, like the one thing that would keep me from staying sober was like, how am I going to go to football games sober? How am I going to go to concerts sober? How am I going to go on a date sober? Like all these things because of this social anxiety. So instead of like me, like not wanting to admit that I was, had a problem, it was more so that I was afraid of how I was going to live sober because of the social anxiety. You know, alcohol was my social lubrication. So when I finally got vulnerable and, and said to people like, how do I go on a date sober? Or how, 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 do you, how did you get 20 years sober? And I know that you go to football games all the time. How did you do that? Like I, I have a big problem, a big hang up in my head about how I'm going to continue to do the things that I love without alcohol. So a lot, a lot of it was just, you know, the, the, at a base level, it's, you know, it starts with asking for help, you know, help me, help me do this, help, help me, show me the way. And then as you grow and as you get, as you spend time sober and as you learn sober, it's more about, okay, I'm going to go do this, but Hey, I need to talk to you real quick. I'm having a hard time getting my head around this, 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 the idea of doing a ski trip sober or something like that. So what were the, some of the principal mechanisms and things that you used to get from that place where you were kind of underneath all of this and then began to be able to, to utilize your strength and your, the, your, the clarity of your, your own thinking to make the improvements that you needed to make. I mean, you mentioned AA, were, were you doing other types of things that were educating you on how to deal with the issues you were facing? Um, so that, yeah, I'd say um, AA was a big one. Um, and what it was, I did go to rehab when I first got sober and having the groups, like you, you have the, you know, the rehabs are, you know, you have guys groups that you go to, like where every morning you spend two hours in a group with the same six or seven guys and you just kind of go around and you, and you just go around the horn and you just say, this is what I'm feeling today. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what's going on. This is what I'm scared of all that stuff. So in that process is, is there is education in there. Um, and I'm saying there, there's tangible education where there's books you can read about it and stuff like that. But there's, there's the education of the experience in a sense of like the, the power of the spoken word, the power of letting it out of your head and the power of just, it's, it's kind of like, you know, like they say, when you want to learn something, break something, you want, you want to learn how to do something, break something. You have to like, you have to say stuff like out loud and to say like, if you're, because you're not, I'm not in touch with my feelings about social anxiety. I'm not in touch with the fact that I'm depressed. I'm not, you know, even really barely aware of it. So, you know, it takes chipping away at it. Like you're talking about chipping away at like, what's above the depression? Like what, what, what is it that like, do I want to admit that I'm depressed? Do I want to admit that, that this is the reason I drank? You know, I always, for the longest time, my explain, my, you know, justification for my drinking was that like, I just like to have too much fun. Like, I just like to have more fun than the next guy. When in reality, that's not, that's not entirely true. You know, yeah, I did like to have fun and I partied and it was always, it was, it was, there was a lot of good times, but at the same time, like when you can say, like, you have to say first, like, maybe you say like, you know, like, um, so the reason I drank 
you know, the reason I started drinking again after 60 days of sobriety was because, you know, my car, I had to take my car to the shop and it was like one more thing. You know, that's not really it. Like, that's like, okay, so you admit that and you say like, okay, so why is, th- why, now, now it's, now you admitted that. So now it's, okay, so why is it that taking your car to the shop, everyone in the world has to take their car to the shop sometimes. Why does it, why does that, why do you drink over that? Okay, so now we're down to another layer here. So why did I drink over the, the having to take my car to the shop, which seems like a very insignificant thing? And so then once you tap into the different layers, that layer no longer is relevant because then you're past it. You've moved past that layer. So as far as the education goes that way is that you learn that like, you know, they always say layers to the onion. So as you peel away layers, new layers appear. And then, then you, you gain the, from, from the act of being vulnerable and looking past that, you know, taking away that layer, you then gain more insight into what's actually underneath all that stuff. What did you find underneath that? I, I find it interesting that you, I mean, you mentioned asthma and food allergies. Yeah. Those seem like, like a person who had those issues, it would seem like that was, that would, those would not be things would, that would trigger necessarily trigger social anxiety. Uh, I'm just curious what that linkage, what that linkage was. Were you afraid that people would know that this, you had these like quote weaknesses in your, in your day, in your life. Uh, and, and you didn't want people to know that you had health issues or. Um, yeah, it's a great question. So there's a couple things there. Um, yeah, one is, is that I did, I felt very different from my, um, from my peers, you know, having the, the asthma and the food allergies, like all my peers could go to like a party in a, in a barn or something like that, or they could go to a birthday party and not worry about eating a piece of cake with a peanut in it. So I felt, I immediately told myself I'm different. You know, I'm different than my friends. Like these people, they have this and I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not like them. I have this problem. So there was that internal conversation. And then there was times when I was, um, you know, I'd be walking through the hallways of school and kids would see me having an asthma attack and start making fun of me for the way I was breathing, you know, breathing heavy and the wheezing. So that made me, that kind of drove home the point that now, yes, I'm different. You know, I'm, uh, so then therefore when I, now it's like time to go to these parties and I'm just like, you know what, I'm, there, there's a, there's a, not only, so not only do I feel different, I also have this built-in fear that like, what if I eat a peanut when my parents aren't around? Or what if I have an asthma attack and, you know, someone's not there to take me to the hospital? So now I have, you know, external social evidence of the fact that I'm different, plus this internal fear that what's going to happen, like I could possibly die. It just, it just in, ingrained in me that like social situations were dangerous for either getting picked on or, you know, something could happen and I'm not taken care of. So that... Like, and again, I didn't recognize this till much, much later on in my life, like almost till I'm in my thirties, that it was social anxiety, that I had this social, that this, you know, it went from being a really, a pretty legitimate fear of, you know, eating a peanut and going into anaphylaxis or having an asthma attack and my lungs stopped working. I mean, there, there was a time I was playing Little League Baseball. This is one time that sticks out in my head. And um, I don't know where inning it was, but I was having a great game. I had a few hits. I was playing really well. And I remember I got a triple and I ran around to third base. And that's the last thing I remember is being on third base. And all of a sudden the world started spinning and I just, I passed out on third base from having an asthma attack because my lungs had stopped working. So I have all this evidence that like there's no safety in the world, unsafe, completely unsafe. So 
I would, I would have my mom, when there was a birthday party, I would have my mom call the parents and be like, hey, Sam's not feeling well, he can't make it to the party. And so this just, and then, so then I would just, I realized that like not being social was a better answer for me. It was, it was, it was easier for me. And I, and I didn't, again, like, I mean, I'm, I'm anywhere from like eight to, to 15 years old at this point. Like to, to say, I recognize this as quote unquote social anxiety. I didn't, I just knew that like when I was in social situations, I was very uncomfortable. And when I was home or playing tennis, I was, I felt very comfortable. Wow. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's a big share right there, man. So, uh, <laughs> no, <there's laughs> <number more. laughs> one, oh yeah. Well, number one, thank you for, for that story. Cause I mean, that, yeah. that shows a lot about, you know, people that do have a lot of food allergies or they may have, you know, some other, you know, health issues that go on. And, you know, the first thing that came to my mind whenever you were saying that is it was actually a recent South Park episode. Um, I, I love that show, but it was, um, about the character on the show is, um, Scott Malkinson and like his tagline is, I'm Scott Malkinson and I have diabetes and he meets a girl that comes to the school and she's like, I'm this, I'm that. La, 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 da, 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 da. And then at the very end, like she says, and I have diabetes and he's like, this is the girl for me. And the whole point of the story is that she shows him that there's more to your life than just being afflicted with this disease. So number one, like, I feel like that's where you've come to now is like, Hey, like there's more to it. Um, but what I want to kind of ask is like when you, like we're getting from, you know, your eight to 15 year olds to, you know, being someone beyond just having a health issue. Um, did you think that like having your mom, you know, call in your other friends or, you know, kind of ducking out on social situations, that was more of like a self-preservation. Like I don't want to get hurt. Like I don't want myself to, you know, be compromised and therefore I'm going to not do this. Do you think that was part of it or was it something else that was going on? There, th that does, I think that was definitely a thought of mine. Um, mm -hmm. However, you know, I didn't, again, I didn't, um, I, I, I couldn't, there was no frame of reference at that age. Like I didn't have a frame of reference of like, you know, like I didn't know anything else except to the fact that if that this, this could happen, I didn't have any kind of, like comparison to like what it's like to be that or what it's like to not be like, so kids would like, kids would pretend to offer me peanuts. They'd be like, here's a Snickers bar. Yeah. You can, you want a bite? Like have a bite. You can't have a bite. Ha ha ha. And so yeah. all this stuff was like, yeah, self-preservation in a sense of like, I just didn't, I just knew that like, I felt like it felt like the spotlight was on me at any, in school um, in, on basketball teams or soccer teams, whatever, baseball teams, whatever I was playing, it just felt like I just felt so different and so out of place in every situation. But yeah, I think that like, I think that there was like a survival mechanism going on there. There was a survival mechanism in a sense of like, I'm not accepted there, so I'm not going to go. That's painful. That's uncomfortable. And also, yeah, like, you know, to like, to, to have, to not really know, like when I, the reason I say eight to 15 is because when I was like 15 or 16, by that point, I had enough awareness to know the things I could and could not eat. The things like I, I knew when to use my inhaler, my rescue inhaler. I knew that if I was having trouble breathing, playing basketball, running around the field to like just take a minute and stop, catch my breath. Like I knew those things. But up until then, it was like, holy crap, what's going on? Like, I don't know any, I don't know what's going on. I, and another analogy, I, like to, I love to make analogies. Another analogy I have here is like as a kid and like, you know, something happens where I get a breakout in hives or I get an asthma attack. I, I imagine it being like 
on a plane, if you're like a toddler, a two or three year old on a plane and the plane's landing and your head's depressurizing and you have no, you have no idea why, like as an adult, we know like, you know, pop your ears, blow your nose, whatever. It's going to relieve that pressure as a, as a two year old or a toddler. Like you always hear kids screaming on the way down land when planes are landing. Cause all they know is like, Oh my God, my head's about to explode. And I have no, I have no frame of reference. Why? Like I had no frame of reference as to why, this was happening to me or like what, what an asthma attack was until later in life when I started to recognize it. But by that point I had already become so socially withdrawn because of the, the fear and that survival mechanism that it, it, it was now I was now the act, it was actually social anxiety because I had complete control over my asthma and my allergies at that point. I mean, I had complete control over what I ate. I had references. I had reference for how I felt. I knew if I felt this way to do this thing, but yet at this point now, I was just afraid of people. I was afraid of the world. I was afraid of social situations just because I had no reps. Like I had no practice. I had no, like no, all my other friends had been all out in these social settings since they were eight, nine, 10 years old and had all this like practice, quote unquote. Well, the other thing, I mean, really it shines through is just one of the things that you did in the frame of reference on was how human beings are often not terribly compassionate and young, young people um, these, these jokes, these things, when, when we look back as adults at, at some of the cruelties that young people, uh, expose each other to, it's kind of amazing that we survive it. But, uh, clearly you, um, I mean, what, what a traumatic thing. I mean, you're, you're being made vulnerable by a physical condition that is then piled on by people's cruelty. And I'm sure, I'm just curious for, for what, did you feel an urge to lash back at these people and say, oh, you're making me miserable. I want, I mean, I want to hurt you. I actually want to, I want to re respond and actually bring harm to you. Or did you, did you, you was it full, like a full withdrawal and you just completely didn't want to uh, have any interaction with these people? Yeah, it was the second one. I, I'd never had any kind of like, that you none of that like lashing out violence or anything like that like i want to hurt them i didn't i for me it was almost more like they were just validating what i already knew like that i already knew that i was different i already knew that i was less than i already knew that i was not enough and and to say that like it drove me into like um anger or resentment or anything like that no it was more just like this just gives me more reasons to withdraw socially because the reason I mentioned is that uh, you mentioned being a toxic masculinity warrior. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming against toxic masculinity. <laughs> to yeah. me, I guess my, my little shorthand of toxic masculinity is a person who's, who then is causing harm to others by their behavior in some way. So I'm just curious. Right. Did you just identify and see that behavior in other people? Or at some point in your life, did you, would you say, hey, I was a toxic, I was a toxic male. And what, how did you define it? How, what, how did that come into your, into your awareness? Um, yes, I was definitely toxic. Um, to say, mm, that's a really, really great question. Um, I'm trying to think how to word it correctly. So this, this now gets into like more of the addiction. So one thing that um, all that stuff as a child, like I was one of those kids that was you know, really well-mannered, really played by the rules, didn't do anything wrong, sat up straight, like all this stuff, like other, other parents would be like, my God, your kid is so well-mannered. He has, he has the best manners. He's so polite, all this stuff, all growing up. 
And, you know, I've, I've done some therapy on that and it could be something that I was just, I felt so disapproved of in society that I was just seeking approval from doing all the things the right way and that kind of thing. And so um, when, when my addiction kicked in, when I started uh, drinking heavily, doing a lot of drugs and stuff like that, I, I did. How become, old would you say that when it started kicking kick into that level? At that level, um, I would say 30, about 30. Um, I got, I, I started to first, like, so the real strong, like when, when the addiction was like, that's all there was pretty much was ages 33 to 38 up to that, like after college until about age 30 from 23 to 30, it was a lot of hard partying. Um, some, some bad, like some bad decisions, but no real consequences. But there was definitely like, you know, some problems with my relationships. People were starting to ask questions. I was known as like the party guy. Like if you wanted to party, go, you know, call Sam. But again, it, it was, it was no real, looking back, I can say that, yes, there was addictive behavior going on there. And that was when at 23 was when my tennis career ended. And so that's when I, you know, went into the real world and got a job and, and found out about like happy hours and, and all this stuff. And so, so at that point though, is the, is the social anxiety, re you're not feeling it anymore? You no. had kind of, okay. Well, the social anxiety I had, I had, I had, I had kind of flipped from social anxiety to a, a, self, a, a, a false sense of confidence, I guess I could say, based around drinking. So like, I knew that like, Hey, I, I loved going out and having a few drinks and laughing with my buddies or, or chasing girls or whatever it was at that time. Like I loved going out and doing that based on the fact that there was drinks involved. So one of my, one of my therapists along the way, he asked me, so when, when you go out or when you go to a football game or a concert, like, why are you, why are you going to that? Why, what's the event? What is, what, what, what part of that is the event? And the event is the party. Like it could be the, the football, the concert, the festival, the, the night out, whatever is irrelevant. But the event is me drinking. Like, so I'm more interested in, in, and so that's like, that was a delineation I had to make. That was one of my huge delineations I made between like, you know, am I an alcoholic? Like where, where's the, where, where's my intention behind drinking? And it's, I go, I go out and I drink so that I can enjoy being out. I go to a concert and I drink so I can enjoy being at the concert. I go out to a football game because, I mean, I love football, but I go there, I go to a tailgate so I can drink to enjoy the tailgate more. So it was, it was all predicated on me being drunk. And so when I turned 30, 30 years old, um, I had gotten divorced, recently divorced at 29, and I moved down to Miami. And um, that was the first time that, like, I, I would say that, like, there was real toxic behavior where my behavior was affecting other people, like my girlfriend at the time, my parents. Um, people were, there's some people that were afraid of me. Um, they would say, like, my, you know, my, my mom and dad would tell me that like people like are they're afraid to be around me when I get drunk because I'm so over the top and so it wasn't there was no belligerence it was it was I was you know quote unquote happy drunk but very just gregarious and aggressive and you know kind of people were scared of it so when you say the toxic behavior came in yeah um, the toxic masculinity is is something that um, I get yeah I guess it kind of hits home with me in a sense of like that I see it. I see a lot of people 
I see it. I see it out there a lot. You and you see things like the talking, the 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 domestic violence and stuff like that, and the talking bad about women and and like even with like not the, not even to get into politics, but like with the Donald Trump, like the locker room talk, quote unquote, stuff like that. Like you know, I I just see it as like a, an issue in our society, a huge block. And then like the Me Too movement came about, and you know, the, like it would put all this, and all the men, the, the actors, all that, 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 that stretch of where we had Bill Cosby and Kevin Spacey and all these guys, like all this behind the scenes stuff of this, like just terrible behavior. And it's just like, you know, like I can, I can relate to a sense of toxic behavior and a sense of like just being selfish and just reckless. And as far as like a quote unquote calling myself toxic masculine, I don't think I, I was never there, but I was a, I was a definitely a toxic presence in a lot of people's lives in a sense that um, trouble followed me, disrespect followed me. I was very selfish. Um, I didn't care a lot about other people's feelings. I, I, you know, the addiction took over and it was, it was all coming from a place of like, where can I get my next drink? Where can I get my next drug? What can you do for me? Do you have drugs? Do you have drinks? Come over. Can you bring some drinks? Like it was. So this pot is boiling. Did it boil over? Did you have like a total crisis crash? Like what, what got you finally to say, Oh my God, this has to change. So, it, um, the, so I had a, uh, I was sober for, for 11 and a half months in the, in from 2011, from September of 2011 to September of 2012, I was sober and I had moved from Florida back to North Carolina and uh, broken up with my girlfriend because I knew that if she was around, I couldn't drink. And I had a, a buddy from town in high school and he said, Hey, do you want a beer? And I, uh, he had no idea about my history of six trips to rehab, multiple DUIs, any of that stuff. And I just like, yeah, I do. And so I started drinking on September 20th and I drank for two months, pretty much straight for two months. And in that time I spent seven nights in jail. I was in the hospital four times. Uh, my neighbors woke up on my front lawn. My, my house got broken into by my drug dealer. He stole my TV. Um, yeah, and that, that was a two-month – that was all in a two-month period. So, I mean, there was not a lot of time for anything else in that period. And so then all of a sudden on um, November 21st of 2012, I was, it was 4 a.m. and I was sitting in my kitchen in my, kitchen in my house, which I, was, which, I was, which I was about to move out of because I couldn't pay rent because I didn't have a job anymore. Um, I was supposed to move out of the house in four hours. The movers were coming and I hadn't packed up a, a thing. I just spent the past three days drinking and doing drugs. And so it was 4 a.m. and I look and I'm sitting there at my kitchen table by myself. There's a bottle of Captain Morgan's and a, and a pile of cocaine in front of me. And at that moment I had a, a just a, like, it was like, it was like, it was like being hit by a, a wall of, of just like dust and gravel and pain. I mean, like it was just a, a mass, a mass hit me. And it, what it was, was it was the past five, but really the past 15 years of my life, all that toxicity, all that pain I had caused just hit me. It came over me like a, like a, like a pile of dirt. And I was like, this can't go on. So at that moment I called 911 and I told them I'm having suicidal tendencies. And uh, I actually wasn't having suicidal tendencies. Um, I, I never did, but I, but I had also, tried to call 911 before and they were like, just go to sleep, sleep it off. And I, and I said, I, and I knew to my, in my head, like that's not going to work this time. Mostly cause I was just scared of what I had to face the next day. 
And so uh, from that moment, from 4 a.m. when I got in the ambulance then, um, uh, they took me to the psych ward. I went from the psych ward for seven days. I was there to a rehab in Michigan for six weeks, to another rehab in Utah for two months, to a sober living, and then to San Francisco. But it was that moment at 4 a.m. where everything, I don't know, I, I can't tell you why, I can't tell you what clicked, but just like, it, it was like when they say like, you know, your life flashes before your eyes, like, it was like all of a sudden everything and all the pain and the conversations with my parents and my sister hadn't talked to me in five years and my girl, all the girlfriends I had lost and the jobs I had lost, ev everything came and just sat there on my front door and was like, we're here, face the music. And you had stopped having any contact with your, your parents as well? You said your sister for five years. You had... um, sorry, yeah, go ahead. No, your, your sister stopped talking to you for five years. But your parents were hanging in. Yeah, my sister stopped talking to me for five years. My mom was barely hanging on. Uh, my mom and, and my relationship was uh, pretty much non-existent. I mean, we talked just because to check in and stuff like that. My dad, um, actually, I was, I was supposed to move in with him the next day. But um, he came, he, I had seen him the week before. And I'll never forget the, the way he looked was gray. His eyes were almost hanging out off of his head. Um, I had just, and it was all because of this pain that I was causing him. And my older sister would call me crying, be like, you have to stop this. You're like, you're killing our parents. And so my sister had previously, she stopped talking to me when I was 33. Like we, we, would, we would see each other maybe at Thanksgiving or Christmas. But we'd also try to like avoid each other. And she just cut me out of her life, my younger sister. And... Um, but like I saw my dad's face and you know what his dad, his face looked like, looked like the emperor from star Wars emperor in that hood and that dark sunken old gray. Like I, I still see it to this day. And I just like all that came to me. And so the family, they were still talking to me, but to say that anybody was doing well was not true. And how long ago was this now when, when you had finished this period of, of, um the rehabilitation this is like rehab um i so i was uh, that was november 21st of 2012 and then i was in rehab until um rehab or sober living until june of 2013 and then in august of 2013 i moved to san francisco so i was in i was nine months of treatment after that day and from that time till today tell us about that journey what went from you getting your sea legs standing on your own two feet after such a traumatic period to where, where you are now. So, yeah. So moving to San Francisco, I knew nobody except that sister who hadn't talked to me for five years. Um, I had to call her and make the amends and tell her what was going on and explain to her what I was doing now and all this and show her the proof that things had changed. And, and um, from that moment on moving to San Francisco, not knowing anybody was the first time in my life that I would move. I, I moved up and down the East coast a bunch. And the first, my first, my MO was like, go to the bar and meet people. So this time I went to AA and I met people and I went to tennis leagues and I met people and I went to the gym and met people. I built my life around. I, and I knew I, and, I, and people say like, like, was it hard to stop drinking? And for me, like even during my, through my addiction and through my alcoholism, if I wasn't, if I wasn't actively drinking, I didn't really have a problem not drinking. It was just that once I started, I, I, I couldn't stop. So I, I was, I had, a, I really had like a, like 
an internal, just like complete 180 on that day where I was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't, no matter what happens in my life, I can't drink anymore. So I committed to live, learning how to live sober. And when I got to San Francisco, you know what? I owned it for one thing. I, you know, people said, are you drinking? No, I don't drink. And I just, and it's, it's amazing when you say it with confidence and when you own it, people just like, like they're like, oh, okay, whatever. Like they don't really, people, one of the, one of my major breakthroughs as far as like that social anxiety goes and that social, that social um, uh, lubrication with the alcohol was that people just, as long as they have a drink in their hand, they don't really care what you're doing. And I was always under this, like being from, I think from that, being that kid that everyone focused on because of the asthma and the allergies and being different. Like, I feel like if I go out and I don't drink, it's going to be like that that again. It's going to be really uncomfortable when in reality, like they just don't, if they have a drink in their hand, they don't really care what you're drinking or not. And so that and going on dates and owning it. And then just that whole thing about like going into a meeting and into a men's meeting or a group of guys or finding a tight group of guys that I can call and be like, I'm struggling today. And having that vulnerability, having that, like, it doesn't even have to be, like, it used to be about drinking. Like, I would call up a guy, a buddy of mine, at, like, maybe 10 o'clock at night, be like, hey, you know, kind of thinking, like, the drink might be a good idea. And as soon as I say that out loud, it sounds stupid. It's, and, and, and to say it sounds stupid is almost like not giving it the respect it deserves, but it really sounds like you've got to be kidding me. Are you, ser- are you seriously thinking about having a drink right now? And like learning that like once you say it to somebody else or say it out loud to a group of people, it's all gone. The power is gone. And then for me, recognizing like what happens when I do drink. So, so okay, so say I'm saying it's a Friday night, like, oh, yeah, it's a nice day in San Francisco. People are out in the park. You know, cold beer sounds nice. Like, okay, that, that does sound nice. But ending up in jail on Sunday morning doesn't sound very nice at all. And that's what, that's what it came to for me, seven nights in jail for a DUI. You know, like playing the tape forward, getting vulnerable, like knowing that like no matter what, like the, the, the thing about moving to San Francisco was is that because I didn't build my life around the, the toxicity of the bars and the people around the bars, good things started falling to my life. Like I became a personal trainer, which was something I wanted to do forever. And I fell in love with that and I was really good at it and it gave me a lot of success. And so I quickly learned that like that when I build my life around pure intentions and quality people and, and coming from a place of purpose that good things happen. And so as my life got really good, you know, it, it went back, it started to weigh my life way outweighs the idea of having a drink to making it any better. Like there's nothing in my, I used to say if I won the lottery, I, I would, I would have it, I would start drinking again. Like there's nothing in my life now that would ever be a reason for me to start drinking again. I just have to say your transformation is just, it's extraordinary. Your story that you just told is just incredibly, incredibly powerful. The way that you talked about playing the tape forward, which I think is an amazing phrase, but your, your idea of owning and not being afraid to own your vulnerability. Yeah. Um, Your, you understand what, is going to happen if you succumb to, you know, the kinds of thinking that is going to take you into a, a very bad direction. And your, first of all, your confidence bespeaks a certain kind of belief in the changeability of of, of behavior and of and of, of human behavior, which to me is a very powerful, uh, a very powerful 
symbol it, because a lot of people really want to hide behind the idea that there are certain things that are not changeable in life. Oh, I'm an idiot. I'm a racist. I'm this. I'm, I'm uh, unempathetic. I'm toxic. And what you're basically saying is there is a way out of it. So I just want to just thank you for coming uh, to, to chat with us because uh, I think anybody who's sitting around thinking they can't turn their life around has to hear you and, and be emboldened. Uh, so that's just, I just got to thank you for sharing this story. Thank you very much, Albert. It was a pleasure. Um, yeah, one thing about that um, is that, uh, you know, we always put ourselves in that box, you know, we, and the stories we tell ourselves, like for the, the, so the story that I told myself for the longest time ever, and this goes back again to like just repeated as a child, was that I need to be saved. Like someone needs to save me because like it was for the and eight to 15 years, you know, I have an asthma attack. Someone will come save me and rush me to the hospital. If I eat a peanut, someone will rush, someone will save me. And so I, I was built, I went through life and through this whole thing. And then, you know, from ages, like from age, when I got to college at 18 till 30, it was, it, it was kind of a blur because I was just barreling through life recklessly, but all the while not knowing that deep down inside, I, I, I knew that my story was that I need to be saved. There's no way that I will ever be who I can become unless I get saved because I need, because that's all I knew growing up. And that, and then I started with the addictions and all that stuff in it. And through all that, even, even the trips to rehab, like Sam's on a bender, send him to rehab, save him. Like it was all about being saved. And then when I, when I got sober this time, and I told my dad the story about uh, Hernan Cortez and burning the boats. I said, dad, I'm burning the boats. Uh, and what I meant was, is like, I'm not relying on anybody else to save me anymore. Like it is my time to save myself now because like everyone has always saved me forever. Girlfriends, parents, sisters, friends. I've always, and, th and this is something that I've built relationships on. It's like, I expect you to save me. Like a girlfriend, I'll, like I love you. Okay, you have to save me now. And like none of the, nothing ever worked because I was always had this expectation. So, you know, when, when I stepped up and moved to San Francisco and said, I'm going to figure this out, come hell or high water, I'm going to figure out and I'm going to save myself. That's when, you know, like that's when like I realized that like vulnerability is strength and like having compassion is strength. And like seeing like someone else, seeing someone else struggle is, and helping them through it is strength all that stuff. And it's and it just like you were talking about, and it goes back to like the stories people tell themselves, like I am a racist, I am toxic, I am weak, I am whatever. Like, you know, and it goes back to these stories that we've either been told or that we've made up about ourselves that we just fall into and then they're easy. And then like they're painful, but they're comfortable and they're easy. And like, the, and we don't even realize sometimes that we're living them until the, the repetition and the pain comes every single few years, like every few years you're going through the same thing. It's because you're living that story and you have to, you have to pattern interrupt and break that story. And that's, that's like the biggest lesson I've learned from, from sobriety is like get vulnerable and interrupt that pattern. Wow. That is a very powerful message, saving yourself and not wanting to be saved. That's, that's huge. And I think that starts really the growth is that admitting to yourself and saying, Hey, this is on me. And like you said before, like I'm hundred percent accountable for, for my own actions. So that, that is a wonderful share. And you know, what I got from your story, um, was really, you know, that plus the communication and being able to talk about it and being able to not be judged or shamed by your feelings and emotions, 
by your, you know, kind of support network. You had your men's group, you had your friends that you could call in and you did have your family members, you know, as, as much as they could be there for you. So it really goes to show you that, yes, the responsibility is on you to start the process, but also you need, you know, your friends, you need support. Um, you need kind of a group outside of yourself to make it happen because a lot of this, you know, isolation from your, you know, situation, whether it be, Hey, I'm in addiction, like, cool. If you isolate yourself in addiction, you're always going to stay addicted. But even in sobriety too, you need to invite other people into there to, to hold you accountable for that. So, I mean, when I heard that from you, I was like, this is, this is my man doing it right now. So that's, I mean, that's great, man. Can can you tell us can you tell us a little bit about the Un- Unbreakable Man project? Because I'm I'm seeing what our time is like. I want to make sure if we keep this to our normal time that we get that in there too. Yeah, sure, sure thing. Um, so yeah, the Unbreakable Man project is um, that's my that's my coaching company. Um, so I I help coach guys into realizing that they are unbreakable, and this is this is kind of where the toxic masculinity thing came in for me is that to be like unbreakable has like a connotation of almost like macho. Right. And so my thing is I want to teach guys that like to be unbreakable, you have to be able to let people in. You have to be able to create momentum in your life with positive, with positive actions and new behaviors. And you have to be open to change. You have to be open to letting, you know, you have to be open to being wrong. You have to be open. You have to be open to letting yourself feel things like pushing things off, pushing, pushing things, pushing feelings and emotions and problems and fears and all that, all that garbage away only makes you rigid. And when you're rigid, you are breakable. When you are bendable and you're malleable and you, and you can flow and let things in and feel things and let them come and go, you become unbreakable because you become bendable and you become flexible and you become open. So the Unbreakable Man Project is my mission to help men overcome mental illness, depression, anxiety, addiction by getting into their getting into their selves and getting into their men getting into their masculinity getting into their femininity femininity getting into whatever it is they need to get into to feel and to move past whatever it is that they've been holding on to for years and years and years so many guys that I talked to I asked one of the first questions I asked how long has this been ha- going on for you and they and a common answer as long as I can remember and like I talked to guys that are 35 40 45 years old and that's like as long as they can remember, they've been feeling depressed or they've been feeling, you know, like they're not worthy or they're not enough. And it's like, they, it's because they've just, no, it's all they've known is like either don't feel, don't cry, don't yell, don't be angry. Don't, I had another guy come to me yesterday and he said, I feel like I'm not being man enough. And my, I'm like, what, what does that, what does not being man enough mean? And he gave me that list of things. He gave me the list of like, I'm not, I'm not like the macho things. And I'm like, and I was, and so it led to another conversation, but that's the thing. I want to make I want to make men unbreakable, not so they're rigid and macho and like tough, so that they're flexible and they, and that the men in this the men of this world create the space, the safe place. Because you know, like, as men, we are the stronger, the stronger, the stronger sex, and so it is not up to us to dominate. It is us. It is up to us for us to create the space so the rest of the world can be free and love and feel and be safe for the, for our women, for our children, for other men, all that kind of stuff. Hell yeah, man. That is a 
absolutely amazing mission. And I am proud to support you in the Unbreakable Man Project. I'm part of your group there and I absolutely love it. So awesome. thank, thank you for you. continuing yeah. to do that. Um, is there anything else you want to add or I can uh, start wrapping up the show here? I mean, you've given us some wonderful stories and some wonderful yeah, inspiration today. I definitely today. want uh, Adam to, to put us in touch on email and or or give me your phone number or something because I want to I just want to keep hearing more about your story, your sure. humility, uh, the tone of how you told your story. The, there was something just very beautiful. And uh, I don't know, just the expression in your face, this kind of the, the, the beautiful kind of pride of feeling like you just are are um, confronting life in an honest way. And that that that's a beautiful message. You know, I think a lot of men think. A lot of us, a lot of human beings, I think we all think that that being uh, happy and being wonderful people is such an un, unreachable goal. And the truth is, it's simple if we're able to do all of the things that you've done. Yeah. Is to, is to just completely commit to seeing where we're at and what are the issues and then to, to be determined to to figure them all out. So you've really inspired me today. So thank, thank you. You've made, made it a great, great day for me and a great, this was really a very uh, rewarding conversation for me to, to hear. Thanks, Albert, very much. Yeah, Adam, both of you guys. Um, all I can add is I want to say thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure to, to uh, talk with you guys and meet you, Albert. And um, I think it's, I mean, this is a simple thing, but I think one, the world is an extremely beautiful place and the way that synchronicities happen and I know that the guys, uh, the people on listening to this can't see, but just by accident, all three of us are wearing red shirts. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't plan that at all. But I think like if you can just be aware of the little things in life that are like that little, that's a little thing. But to me, that's beautiful. Like the little things that happen in the daily basis like that, when you become aware and open and, and you can see those things as beautiful, you know, like I think that's a, that just opens yourself, it opens you up to really be, be present and to be happy. Absolutely. You're awesome, so, dude. Yeah. You guys are awesome too. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sam. Well, this has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. Thank you for listening.